0: As you can see from the bulletin, we've entitled this morning's message, The Impact of the Miracle. Nothing really fantastic as far as titles go or anything like that. And I'm sure for those of you that are here week after week, you're glad to see that we're finally coming to the end of chapter 11. We are finally there. Well, what has been going on? has been a tremendous miracle. We are coming off, in my opinion, the greatest miracle that has ever been seen to this time by man. This was not just a resurrection. That would be a fantastic miracle in and of itself. Who of you here today would not desire to see somebody just taken out of the grave? We would all see that as overwhelming. We would all see that as fantastic. But this particular situation was a miracle that was even greater than that. Because it was not only a resurrection, but this was a resurrection that was performed on somebody who had been dead for four days. This throws away all of that meteor and phoniness that's out there that is supposed to be resurrections, are supposed to be miracles that you cannot tell whether they're true or not true. This one, there's no question. Four days dead. In fact, his sister says, don't go near the grave. He stinks. Very vivid, very plain. This was a miracle that as we have seen in studying the word of God, only God could perform this miracle. And purposely, he waited the four days because of, as you've heard through the teaching, the rabbinical teaching believed that for the first four days, there was always the possibility of coming out of the grave, but never when it reached four days. So they knew that only God could do this. And indeed, the miracle took place. Demonstrating, as Jesus Christ has throughout this 11th chapter, and by the way, if you were not here, the focus of chapter 11 is not Lazarus. Lazarus is just a dead human being that benefits by the gift of God. The focus of attention is Jesus Christ. The whole chapter. And his focus in this particular chapter has been on both his humanity which we've seen in his compassion, in his concern, and also his deity, which is very crucial even to our message this morning. Because we've seen that only God, and they understood that, could do this particular miracle, and Jesus, just by the spoken word, called Lazarus, a dead man of four days, out of the grave and into their presence. So this chapter has already demonstrated exactly what Martha We talk about Mary today again, but what Martha has said in this chapter, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, which is the whole purpose of John's gospel according to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Everything that's in here is to help us to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not just a good man, not just a miracle worker, but the Messiah, the promised one of God. So that has just taken place now. And now we come to the reaction, the impact, if you will, that this miracle that I have just summarized again for you has had on those who have witnessed it, those who have had the opportunity to see what has taken place. And before we get to John, you may want to put your finger in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because I will be there for a couple of moments this morning in this introductory portion. Because the contrast that we see in John chapter 11 is very typical. There is always this type of situation, either when Jesus spoke or when he did a miracle, when he did any type of teaching, there was always a different reaction. There was always a contrasting situation, which is absolutely amazing to us if we think about it as human beings, though we say, I guess that's normal. But I'd like you to think about this. Isn't it amazing how people who see the same exact evidence can react differently? Same exact evidence. These people that we're going to come across, the many and the some, in just a few moments, all saw the same thing. They all had the evidence in front of them. Some of them will respond positively. Many will. Others will not. Why? I think it's a valid question for us to ask. And the reason why is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for a second. Let's turn there. We'll be in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians for just a few moments. We need to remember this in witnessing. That's why I want you to be there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Let us not forget this, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. Even as, watch this, the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now it isn't that Apollos and Paul didn't have a pot, watch. I planted, Apollos watered, what's the key here? But God, what? He gives the increase. God gives the increase. He causes the growth. God absolutely must do the work. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the uh, the increase of the growth. We need to concentrate on the fact that even with the same evidence, God has to give the increase. That doesn't mean we're useless because he goes on. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And here it is. For we are God's fellow workers. God has privileged us to serve him. And we are able to serve him. And then he says, but notice this. You, those believers even at Corinth, are God's field, God's building. People that come to Christ are God's people. They're not our people. We need to remember that even in witnessing and even as we come to this portion In John chapter 11. Because there will be different reactions. When we are witnessing or we are preaching, I challenge you to do this simply present the Word of God, simply give the gospel. That's what we need to do. And leave the rest to God. Too often, men do not want to do that. There is absolutely no need for gimmicks. There is absolutely no need to try to make the gospel palatable. It is not palatable. When the gospel is presented properly, it is offensive. To go and tell somebody that they're a sinner, they don't like it. If you don't tell someone they're a sinner, you're not presenting the gospel because they don't understand why they need to get saved in the first place. It is not based upon human strategy. Go out and witness in the workplace. Go out and witness in your neighborhoods. And sometimes we get depressed or discouraged because man sets his umbrella up about the way we got to do everything. And then someone doesn't get saved and we feel like we're a failure. No, present the gospel and leave the rest with God. He knows how to take care of things. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Is this something foreign that Pastor Dan is talking about? I don't think so. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at the first five verses. When I came to you, Paul says, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except this, what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's message. When I look at Paul throughout the apostles' uh, messages here, as we look at the New Testament epistles, I am overwhelmed by the godliness of Paul and how he was used. But he didn't dwell on that. This wasn't to make a reputation for the apostle Paul. He says, I came and I just preached Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you, watch this, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul was not just talking about trembling for his life. He was afraid of people as well. As a human being. He was just like you and I. And what happened was, he knew the power of the gospel. By the way, I'm not in Romans, but that's why he said in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, a gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. He knew that the power rested in the gospel, not in him. In verse 4, It says, in my message, what was it? In my preaching, we're not in persuasive words. He didn't have to have a certain vocabulary of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power. All he was was a witness of Christ that had changed his life, and the people knew it. Because when he was starting to preach the gospel, they were saying, wait a minute, wasn't this the guy that was out persecuting the church? Yes, something happened. He didn't have to go with any gimmicks. He just went with a message. That's all he did. Verse 5. Why? Here it is. The purpose is, so that, that's the purpose, your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but what? On the power of God. And that's why it's important. That's what we need to realize even here. How can people see a resurrection like that and have different reactions? Because everything rests on the power of God and God working. It doesn't Rest on the schemes of man. In chapter 1, just across the page, you just noticed it, verses 18 and 19. He says, for the word of the cross, watch this, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are believing, are being saved, it is what? The power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. It's got nothing to do with cleverness when it comes to the gospel. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, go to 2 Corinthians. Just two more passages, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You want to walk out of here with one thing. Here it is, this morning. And it's why we're going to see that people have different reactions. God's got to do the work. Not man. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Here's what Paul says. For we do not preach ourselves. Let me tell you something. If anybody ever stands in this pulpit or in any other classroom that you go to, and they're all about themselves, run. This is not about Pastor Dan. This is not about people. And Paul said it is not about him. He said this. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves what? Your bond servants for Christ's sake. That's what it is. We are nothing but fellow workers with God, and bond servants one of another, and we leave everything else to God because our preaching is not about anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone will believe. In 2 Corinthians, since you're there, go to chapter 2 for a minute. You are never a failure. Let me leave you with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. When I say leave you on this, on this section here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Remember verses 14 through 16. Look what it says. But thanks be to God who, how many times causes us to triumph? Always. Always. Listen, if you are a believer, if you know Christ, you are always triumphant. When I had the opportunity and I went to Argentina to preach to the missionaries, that whole week was spent teaching them on their triumphance. Uh, being triumphant in Christ. That you are victorious. Don't ever go away from witnessing, saying to myself, what a failure I was. Did you preach the gospel? Yes. Then what are you worried about? The results are not up to you. Watch what it says. Watch. He says, we are always triumphant, leads to triumphant in Christ, and manifests through us, watch this, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among... Notice that. Our life is to be lined up with God. It is to be a fragrance of Christ to God among those, watch this, who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma of death to death. That's the perishing. And to the other, an aroma of life to life. We don't fail. Why? Because our Savior does not fail. If our message goes forth, God takes care of the rest. And if there's no increase, it's because God didn't give it increase. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. It is God, I won't turn you there. But it is God is the one that must lift the veil. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I've preached through that book and you know it. He's got to lift the veil. And he even used Moses as an example in how the people of Israel, and that's what's part of your responsive reading here in Acts, that that part of Israel would not receive. They heard the message, they saw the evidence, and they still wouldn't believe because God's got to be the one to lift the veil, not you or me. Our job is to give the message and leave the rest with God. This is not about statistics. This is not about trying to make Fellowship Bible Church a church of 200, 300, 400, 500, 600. That is His territory. It's a matter of preaching the gospel. It's a matter of letting God work. Statistics be left with him. I would not want to stand before Christ when that time comes and say, oh, I want you to know I saved a thousand souls and have them turn around and say, really? Number one, you didn't save anybody. And number two, those professions of faith, stick around for the rest of the message, were not real because you didn't do it the right way. And if you had preached the gospel the right way and left the increase with me, But look at how many have come to salvation. I don't want to have that happen. Now, go back to John chapter 11. With that as a foundation. Why do people have different reactions? God's going to give the increase. The outline for this section, those of you that know me, they're not my outlines. I take them right from Scripture. This Scripture, this section of, of Scripture outlines itself. How do you know that? Well, look, in verse It's outlined in the first three points by the conjunction translated therefore or so. In verse 45, therefore many. Verse 47, therefore the chief priests. Verse 54, therefore Jesus gives me its own outline. I don't need to outline it. did it itself. Number four, my fourth point of my outline is where you find the word in verse 55 and now. So what happens is this outlines the whole thing and giving us the reaction it gives us the reaction of different groups. The many and the sum, the chief leaders, then what Jesus did as a result, and then sets the tone for chapter 12 by giving us the next section where it talks about and now when it gets into the Passover. So we'll use that as the outline, which is what I did to give the outline that you have. Let's begin by seeing the impact that it had on the majority in verses 45 and 46 and then the sum. Let's deal with the many first. Verse 45. Therefore, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. Very positive situation. First of all, the Jews are mentioned because the Jews were the ones waiting for the Messiah. They were the people of God. They were the ones to understand. They should have been looking for the signs. That doesn't mean that there could not have been Gentile observers there at the graveside. It's possible. But the concentration is that Jesus came to the Jews first And he came as their Messiah. So as the people of God, they should have known who he was. And it says that they, the ones with Mary. I was fascinated by that with the commentaries, by the way. And I'm going to give you an opinion that's different from the commentaries. In verse 45, the commentaries I consulted started to talk about why it mentioned the name Mary. And because of the fact that, well, Mary had more friends than Martha had. I'm serious. I'm talking about excellent commentaries. And their, their, their time was spent on, well, I think she had more friends, she was more compassionate and whatever. I don't think that's the reason at all. What do you think the reason is then, Pastor Dan? Well, I think the text tells you. It says in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews who came with Ma- to Mary. Who was that? Look at verse 31. Verse 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary got up quickly, they went out. Talking about the same people. There's no other reason in verse 45. It's got nothing to do with friendship. It's got nothing to do with anything else. It's the people that are consoling her. And that's what it's referring to. So what happened in verse 47, uh, verse 45, excuse me, the Jews now come, the ones that were with Mary, those that were consoling her. And when they saw it was done, now they come to this place called belief. We'll deal with that in just a second. I want you to notice the number of eyewitnesses. We don't have the specific number. But there were many there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus. I have done many a funeral, as you know, and I have had people come up after funerals and talk to me. If we could only see somebody resurrected from the dead, we have nobody that's seen it. Who are you kidding? Many saw Lazarus get resurrected. In fact, the scriptures record for us in Corinthians that when Jesus got resurrected and the epistle was written, there were still a great majority of over five, near 500 That had seen it; that were still alive and around when it was written. All kinds of eyewitnesses. Man can get all the evidence in the world, and that is not what's going to bring him to Christ. It is God working in the heart. But there were first-hand witnesses. Now it says that they believed. Now they believed. That is faith. There's no trick here. They believed. That's faith. What is faith? Well, salvation has to come by faith. Salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God. Through faith. That's how it comes. So salvation, that is a right relationship with God, being restored to a relationship with God, because we are sinners, being forgiven by a holy God, is through faith, through the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, was sent out of God's love. Why? Because we are all unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If I just met you for the first time today, I could tell you that and be guaranteed I'm right. You're a sinner. So am I. Why? We all are. Somebody called me on the phone. This is true this week. And they called me up. I'll be honest with you. They called me up to blast me on a couple of a number of things and so forth. regarding got uh, my pastoral teaching and so forth. But the bottom line is, and they were talking about this, and, and he said, uh, you know, Uh, You know, I can't be blamed for what Adam did. And I said, you're like Adam because you're a human being. God created Adam. He was in perfect relationship. He sinned. You're a sinner. He didn't like it. Didn't matter. I told him anyway. And it ended up being an interesting phone call as the, the conversation went on. The point is we are all sinners. God knew that. He sent Jesus Christ. Why? He that knew no sin became sin for us. He satisfied a righteous and a holy God with his death on Calvary. He died there to satisfy a holy God. He was sinless. He took the weight of sin. And now by faith, and by the way, he didn't stay in the grave. He was resurrected. We're dealing with Lazarus here. But he was resurrected, all according to the Scriptures. And now by faith in that finished and completed work, you can have eternal life. So salvation comes by faith. But as we have already seen in the Gospel of John, this may be a shock to some of you, but it shouldn't be to most. Not all faith is saving faith. And how I would love to get that out over the airways to Christianity today. There are many that are professing faith in Christ that are not saved. Not all faith is saving faith. We've already seen that. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? It's pretty bold to say something like that. Let me first of all, by the way, it's interesting that Pastor Stringer dealt with some of these same verses this week. And he didn't see my notes. But the first thing I want you to see is the object of the faith has got to be in the right place. Where is it? In Jesus Christ. No place else. And we know that that's the case here. We know the object of their faith is right. Because when they saw what he had done, that is Jesus Christ, they believed in him. So the object of their faith is good. So number one, they got the object of their faith in the right place in Jesus Christ. Not in religion. Not in themselves. Not in a leader. Not any place else. It's got to be in Jesus Christ. That's where the faith's got to be. But secondly, the content of their faith, it is vital. And I said that not all saving faith. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Go with me in this gospel to John chapter 2. You need to see this. John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 to 25. Now, what happened in John chapter 2? Somebody, volunteer. What happened in John chapter 2? Everybody knows. Huh? Water got turned to, 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 to wine, right? A miracle. It was a miracle that took place. Well, that might have drawn people to belief, right? Watch, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Praise the Lord, right? Watch. Observing the signs which he had done. That's what we have in John chapter 11. It's another sign. They saw the miracle. It wasn't that they didn't see it. They had the same evidence. And they believed. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, For he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was going on inside. There were, these were miracle seekers. These weren't broken hearts coming to Jesus because they needed salvation. They were looking for the guy that could do the signs and the miracles. Go with me to chapter 6, same book. These are the things that we've learned. We need to be careful. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 And again, by this, this is a passage where Jesus says he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. All of that's coming out. You come down to verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign, the miracle, which he performed, this, what did they say? This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's good. But what was their perception? Verse 15. Jesus knew what it was. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again and went into the mountains himself alone. They had the wrong motivation. They believed that what? He could do miracles. How do we know that? Go down to verse 66, same chapter. After Jesus Christ deals with his own disciples, verse 66, and as a result of... Of this, many, watch this, of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away also? Peter had it right. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They knew who he was. We have believed and have come to know, watch, content, That you are the Holy One of God. Difference. Some believed on Him because of the signs. I could give you passage after passage on on this, and I won't. The point is, there is a false belief. In other words, there's faith, but it's only outward. It's not saving faith. What does that faith look like? We've already seen in John's Gospel. It is outward. It is emotional. It is reactionary. The bottom line, in my opinion, if you want to know whether you have real faith or you don't have real faith, or someone else does, it doesn't make any difference how many hands are raised, how many people go down aisles, how many people do what. And I'm not saying that those people are not genuinely saved. That's not the issue. But too often we're looking for that. It's one that is not, here's the key, not motivated by what can I get. Some people want to attach their name to Jesus Christ Just simply because it will get them out of their situation. Or they think they are going to have a good life. True or real genuine salvation works this way. From the inside out. Not from the outside in. Except for the fact that you have got to hear the message. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. That's why preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let him give the increase. It is a life that has changed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if you want to mark it down, it says, if any man has come to Christ, he is what? A new creation. All things have passed away. All things become new. What does that mean? It is a life that's changed. It's a life that bears fruit for Jesus Christ. It's not a one-time profession that says, I said this particular prayer, and they go their way into the world. It's a changed life. In fact, if you don't believe that, look at John's Gospel. Go to chapter 8. Look at it. John chapter 8. We'll go right back to chapter 11. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This is not the way people like to hear a message. But this is the truth that people need to hear. In verse 31, so Jesus was saying, watch this, to those Jews who had believed in him. There was faith. Here's the condition. If you continue in my word, then are you truly disciples of mine. Why do I need to continue in the word of God? Here is why. Verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. True disciples of Jesus Christ, it's a life that's changed from the inside out. They're a new creation. They continue. They persevere. It's called the perseverance of the saints. They continue on with the things of God. They don't fall by the wayside. They are truly changed from within. And they know the Word of God. Why do we need the Word of God? Why does, you know, I just had, as you folks know, my eighth grandchild, whom I haven't yet seen. And so forth. I haven't seen the child. I haven't had the opportunity to hold him. I will soon. But the, 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 the situation I want to get to is this. I've talked to Dave. i talked to Kara. How's the baby doing? The baby's nursing well. Good. Why? Without nourishment, the baby will die. It's true with every baby that comes into the world. It's also true for the believer. If you are a genuine believer, you have to have the word of God. That is your nourishment. That is my nourishment. So in John chapter 11, we have to ask the question. When it says, go back there, John chapter 11, verse 45, we're still in verse 45. He says, they believed in him. Don't just automatically, you have to be honest. If I said to you, somebody just trusted in Christ, wouldn't you just jump for joy? You should. The angels of heaven do. However, What I'm saying to you, sometimes we say that just because we got them, we twisted their arm, we put in the right circumstances, and they said a few words. If somebody truly has come to Christ, we need to rejoice. We need to make sure for their sake. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying here this morning. The worst thing that a preacher can do, I believe, is convince somebody they're saved when they're not. I would rather convince somebody that they need to make sure they're saved. So that when they stand before God, they see that it was genuine. Is this genuine faith? Yes, I believe it is. After all of that, Pastor Dan? Yeah. Now why? I, pro- I believe this is probably genuine for these factors. The context. Number one, this miracle, according to our context, was to glorify God. Verse 40. We just studied that. This was specifically to glorify God. And in verse 4, he told his disciples that this miracle was for the glory of God. In verse 4 of chapter 11. Secondly, the nature of the miracle. I already said that to you. According to verse 39, he had been dead four days. Only God could do this miracle. Three, the contrast in the context alone is between the believer and the unbeliever. Look at verse 46. Many believed, but some contrast of them went and they told the Pharisees. Those are unbelievers. Notice verse 53. In verse 53, it says, From that day forward, they planned together to kill him. There's a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. So I do think it's genuine. Fourth, the religious leaders viewed them as being genuine. How do we know that? Look at what they said in verse 48. If we let him go like this, all men will believe in him. We've got to stop this guy. Everybody's going to believe on him. Praise the Lord if they do. That wasn't their attitude, so the contrast in the context. And also, I would say the significance of the statement of Caiaphas in verse 51, where the Lord tells us that it was not of his own initiative, but he was prophesying about the death of Jesus Christ. And all I'm trying to do is help you to be a good Bible student. Yes, they believed. Are these genuine believers? I think so. Why? Because the context allows for that. The other context did not. Some people believe and he were even baptized, according to the book of Acts. And yet their heart's not right. So don't be fooled by the outward. It's got to be a genuine inward change. So these are genuine believers. They've trusted in Christ. And many did. Why? Because God not only raised someone from the dead, but now did a miraculous work in their heart where they were changed. Notice that. They were changed by the evidence that they saw after they have heard over and over again who Jesus Christ is. That's the majority. But there was always the minority, verse 46. But some of them, we come to that. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. I'd like you to notice a couple of things. Number one, they are unbelievers. Why? They're contrasted to believers. But. Number two, that doesn't mean, this is important, that they didn't believe the miracle. Well, how do you know that? Because the verse says so. They went and they told what Jesus had done. They couldn't deny the miracle. I love that. You know, sometimes in the classes in school, when people are talking to me about this and the students and so forth, I said, I love it because even the enemies couldn't deny what Jesus Christ did. What evidence do you need? You have the evidence of believers, but also the unbelievers. And here they couldn't deny. They knew what happened, and they went and told the enemies of Christ. So they couldn't deny it. They knew it. However, they didn't believe what? That Jesus was the Christ. That's the difference. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They saw the miracle. Whether they thought he was some magician. Or whether they thought whatever. The context doesn't tell us. But they went and told the enemies of Jesus Christ. Obviously unbelievers. That leads us to the reaction of the religious leaders. What do they do? Verses 47 to 53. You can look at it while I preach on it. They call for a council. Emergency meeting. Hurry up, get the leaders. This is the Sanhedrin. They called the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they convened a council together. What are they doing? That was known as the Sanhedrin. These are the leaders. They get them all together. And they are discouraged. Why? People are still believing in Jesus Christ. They cannot deny the miracle. There is no place that they do that. In fact, if you notice in verse 47... For this man is performing, what does it say, how many? Many, doesn't it? Many signs, that's the word for miracle. They couldn't deny it, even those who are going to have him killed cannot deny what Jesus Christ is doing. But they convene a council. And what are they doing? They're frustrated. What are we going to do? Why? They are concerned. What are they concerned about? Now watch carefully. Are they concerned about truth? I don't think so. Are they concerned about what God is doing? I don't think so. Why? Verse 48. If we let him go, on like this, all men will believe in him. You would think if the Jews were looking for the Messiah and he was truly the Messiah, they would be saying, Praise the Lord, this is going to turn the world upside down. Everybody's going to believe in him. No, these religious, church playing gimmick-oriented leaders who didn't care one ounce about the Word of God really were more concerned about themselves and being politically correct. They were concerned about making people happy. They were concerned about keeping the status quo. They were concerned about the quality of peace. They weren't concerned about truth. They didn't want anything disrupted. They were concerned about peer pressure. We talked to teenagers about peer pressure. Let me tell you something. Adults are concerned about peer pressure. The evidence of it is that's why sometimes we don't witness to those at work or those in the supermarket. We're afraid of what they're going to think of us. Uh, sometimes we don't want to follow the truth because it's not going along with the crowd what everybody else is doing. And we think we're going to be odd. They were concerned about doing their own thing. They were not concerned about concerned about the Lord and the truth of the word of God at all they were concerned about persecution how do we know that verse 48 if we let him go on like this all men will believe on him watch and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation they were concerned about persecution on them that they would lose the temple and they would lose their power with the Roman government who was allowing them to consist as a religious entity. You know, I praise the Lord for our government, and I praise the Lord that we have freedom, and we have, I've given you a lesson on this very recently, around the 4th of July. We have a responsibility, regardless of who is in office, regardless of what we think, our responsibility is to get on our knees and pray for our leaders and nation. That's the Christian responsibility. Okay? That doesn't mean we can't exercise rights in other areas, and I've dealt with that. But we need to see that we need to pray. But here's where the line gets drawn. So what if the Roman government takes away our temple? So what if the Roman government persecutes us? They should have had the courage to say, because they were the religious leaders, if this is truly the Son of God, if this truly is the Messiah, if he's the one, so be it. Persecution, come on. That's where we draw the line. And in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that's what we find. When it comes down to obeying God a man, that's where you draw the line. If somebody tells you you can't preach the gospel, you listen to God. You don't listen to them. Now, that's not saying that you don't work and be a fool on the job. you got a job to do as well. But you need to have that in line. And when the time comes, and you know that's true from this pulpit, when the time comes, if the government insists on telling us we can't preach on certain things. This book is getting opened from this pulpit. We're preaching what's in here no matter what. doesn't matter. You need the truth. You need the truth. Now it's interesting. Up steps the chairman. Chairman of the board, Caiaphas. And that's all that means. There's a lot that's made about it in the commentaries. I don't think there needs to be who was high priest that year. He's just saying he was the one that was in power at the time. That's all he's saying. And what goes on, He basically says pretty strong language. You know nothing at all. That's a very nice way of saying you're stupid. It is. I'm being honest with you. Very blunt. That's what he's saying. And he, I want you to notice this, his objective is to kill Jesus Christ. He says, you don't know. He says, or take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that a whole nation doesn't perish. The context of that was what we just read. He was concerned personally about the fact that if we let this guy go on, many are going to believe we're going to lose the temple, we're not going to be able to continue on, and our whole nation's going to be affected. And he's saying, You don't have to think too much about that. The solution's easy, it's a no brainer. Kill him. That's exactly what he's saying, and exactly what he intended. But I want you to see something else. In spite of his intent, notice what verses 51 and 52 say God was in it. Now, he did not say it of his own initiative. What that is showing you, by the way, people sometimes struggle with inspiration. It shows you just how God can impose his will upon the will of man if he wants to. He let him say what he said. The intention of Caiaphas is to kill Jesus. We know that because it also comes down to verse 53. From that day on, they were planning together to kill him. However, Jesus was actually prophesied to die for the sins. How do we know that? God says so. Being the high priest, he actually prophesied. What happened? Jesus was going to die for the nation. Nation of what? Israel. He came unto his own. That's how we started the Gospel of John. But his own didn't receive him. And not the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together one, the ch- in, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, I think, first of all, to the Jews, that meant those Jews that were scattered out of Jerusalem. But it also means that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. And according to the book of Ephesians, God miraculously brings the Jew and the Gentile into one body so that the two become one. How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. That's the message we have to go give to the world. I've been to Thailand. Buddhism is rampant. Buddha saves no one. Muhammad saves no one. Any church, any rabbi, priest, minister saves no one. The only name given among men whereby we we must be saved is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Be bold give that message and he uses even Caiaphas who's got a a bad intent and that is to kill Jesus and actually by killing Jesus he's going to allow the one that needs to save the world to go through with the sacrifice and he's prophesying and God uses him I'll put it to you this way I think it's the simplest way I can give it to you no one absolutely no one thwarts the plans of God when God's going to do something he's going to do that Now, I want to make that practical for you for just a minute. This is not the text. I know we're dealing with the resurrection, and we're dealing with the reactions to that resurrection, but some didn't believe. All the evidence was there. They still didn't believe. The religious leaders were not believers. All they cared about was killing him. And listen, practical application on that one. Don't just assume because someone's in the pulpit that they're a man of God. If they're not preaching the word of God, they're not a man of God. Period. Be very careful. Don't listen to everything that comes along. Test it out by the word of God. But also, let me come back to that practical application that I want to give you regarding the fact that nobody thwarts God's plans. Life is difficult. Right now, 2010, people are really losing jobs. The economy is tough. We get news, Mary Kalika just passed away. Mary Campo just got home from the hospital. There are others in this assembly that are battling with cancer. There are all kinds of situations that come. It is difficult. Family situations with with children and spouses. Many, many difficult situations. Listen, stick to the word of God and what God wants you to do. No one's going to thwart God's plans, and he's still in control, folks. You can find refuge in him. You can continue to trust him. He knows what he's doing, even when we don't. Apply James 1 when you don't. Ask God for wisdom. Ask him for strength to bear up under the trials. He hasn't deserted you. He never will forsake the believer. Never, ever. Nobody changes God's plans. None at all. It's interesting because in comments, just in closing on this part of it, need to wrap things up. But to me, the religious leaders, as I've watched, him just through, watched them just through John's accounts, isn't it interesting? They've tried everything. Remember? Just in John's account. They've tried to disprove that Jesus was the Christ. It didn't work. They, ta- they tried to counter his, his teaching. When he taught one thing, they would come in behind him and teach something else. We've seen that in John. That didn't stop the people from believing. They've tried personal attacks on him and questioning him by sending lawyers and everything else trying to trick him. That didn't work. Recently, they've threatened, threatened with excommunication. If anyone believes on him, we will throw you out of the temple. That didn't work. Now many believe on him. And now they're threatening so that they'll kill people, and they want him killed. Nothing is working so far. So what are they going to do? They're going to aggressively seek to kill him. In fact, it's only a little ways away. They're going to aggressively seek to kill him. They already knew in their hearts that they couldn't stop the people from believing in him. They had all the evidence themselves, and they just wanted to play their little game. We need to be careful. That can apply to us. Yes. We can end up playing church Too many Christians are doing that. They're playing church. It's not a life. Too many leaders are doing that. More concerned about structure and whatever it is that they've got than being concerned about the truth of God. We need to examine our own hearts. Collectively. Individually. And make sure we're really sold out to doing what's right. To following the truth. They're going to pursue actively killing him. The third point, just bounce over it. Time's escaping. But verse 54, Jesus no longer walked publicly. This is now the end of his public ministry. What's his reaction? He essentially closes off his public ministry until he comes to present himself on what we know as Palm Sunday in which he will present himself as the king. But the miracles and all that That he's been displaying publicly. Why? Is he afraid of them? Hardly. Not at all. You know why? Because he wants things done in his father's timing. It's not time for his cup to be born yet. He still needs time to watch this until he dies to instruct his disciples. Look at that in verse 54. He comes near and he stays with the disciples. He's still ministering, he's still teaching. He's still concerned because they are going to carry on the ministry. They are going to be the ones that are going to proclaim the gospel as they will be told in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. And you and I are still the extension of that. And we need to still be proclaiming the gospel today. And we need to still see ourselves as his disciples. And we need to spend our time with Jesus Christ. How do we do that? In the word of God and prayer. How are you doing? How's your prayer life? How's your reading? Sad thing to me as a pastor, and we all fail, starting right here. But when you see some of the struggles sometimes believers are having, and I ask, are you reading? And they said, no, not not like I should. What I try to do is get them back. Read the Word. Get in the Word. Why? That's your food. Get in the Psalms. See what a great God you got. See how God won't forsake you. Gain your strength from him. Your refuge is in Christ. That song we sing, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. When's the last time you did that? Over complaining. Spent time with his disciples. He's waiting and he's going to be aside. Verses 55 through 57, I can expand on when we get to chapter 12. But let me just tell you this. That simply, that chapter, that section is just preparing you to get ready for chapter 12, because the last Passover is coming. I found it kind of interesting, though, because the people are still curious. You know the context. I read it. They're wondering whether he's going to come up. But the thing that hit me most between the eyes as I studied was verse 55. They're coming up for the Passover. What are they coming up there for? Come on. Finish with me. Don't fall asleep yet. You've got another few minutes. Purify themselves. Isn't that what it says? They want to come to the Passover. They're thinking of purifying themselves. And the only one that can purify their souls is in the front of them. It's Jesus Christ. How ironic. They're coming up for religious activity and religious ceremony and all of this for purification. And they won't come to the one that can purify their souls, Jesus Christ. Other than to find out a curious, I wonder if he's gonna come. Why? It tells you. Verse fifty seven said, You report him to us because we're going to kill him. That's why. That's why. My friends, turn with me to one second to Luke chapter E sixteen. This will be closing. John chapter eleven, that we are just concluding right now in my personal opinion, is a tremendous visual aid. It is a tremendous text message. It is a tremendous Facebook picture, whatever you want to do to relate it to today's society, of a situation in which all the evidence in the world can be presented and man's heart still is hardened in believing Specifically, that Jesus is the Christ. Not just a miracle work, but the Christ. It's a picture and visual aid of this passage, Luke chapter 16. Just look at two verses with me. I hope you know the context. In verses 30 and 31, some have died. one guy's died, he's in hell, another one's died, he's in heaven, and he knows that his brothers are on earth, and he says, send somebody back. Look at verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What was the response? But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, and my friend, that is a fancy way of saying the word of God in the Bible. They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And John chapter 11 demonstrates that. The religious leaders didn't believe. Some of them didn't believe. But don't forget that many did. And that ought to be the encouragement to you and I to go out and present the gospel. In this audience today, as I close, is probably in this auditorium. People have not yet come to Christ. You've had the evidence. There could be people that have come to this church since it's been founded. And you've said the words, you had faith in the name of Jesus Christ, but have never come to believe on Jesus Christ. You've had all the evidence, all the preaching that could be in the Word of God. Or maybe you just got the message last week, and you haven't come to believe. My appeal to you is to trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Savior, your Savior, the Savior of the world, the one that came, the Messiah of God. He is the Christ that you might have life through his name. Come to repentance. Believe in him today. You don't need a formula. You can do it right there in the pew. Trust in him for salvation today. Not just as a miracle. worker. Those of you that are believers, we have eyewitnesses of this miracle. Go out. You are an eyewitness as a changed life of a person that's come to Christ and is a new creation. And go out and proclaim the gospel with simplicity. Just give the gospel. Leave the results with God. This is not about us. It's about him. It's about his message. And I'll tell you, if you spend the rest of your life preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and leaving the results with him, you will stand before the Lord and hear, well done. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the word of God. I thank you for the miracle that happened with the resurrection of Lazarus. I thank you for the sign that was given that others could believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I thank you and praise you that many did believe on Jesus Christ for who he truly is. Father, in this audience, there's no question in my mind that there's people who have not yet come to Christ. I pray that you'd help them to look beyond the emotion of the moment. Help them to see that they're a sinner doomed to eternity unless they repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And right there in the pew, help them to come to trust in Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way that they can come to you. And I pray that they believe on him and get saved. For those of us that know Christ, Father, give us a boldness. Help us not to try to use worldly standards, the world's methodology. Help us simply to see ourselves as people who proclaim Christ and him crucified and servants one to another. Help us to go out of here refreshed with a zeal to proclaim the gospel that others might come to Christ and to leave the results with you. Help us to bear fruit for the glory of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.